0: You are listening to the Frontier Podcast powered by Gun.io, the engineer's choice for engineering talent. How will Chinese companies like Huawei affect the future of cybersecurity? How does our relationship with China affect the open source community and the future of AI? These are big questions for big thinkers like Chris Short. Chris runs the newsletter DevOpsish and is also a principal product marketing manager for Red Hat. In this episode, Chris and Ledge discuss the fundamental differences between U.S. and Chinese internet, the technological, legal, and contractual hoops companies jump through in order to tap into a Chinese market, and a breakdown on how Huawei could shape the tech landscape in years to come.
1: Chris, great to have you on, man. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thank you. Appreciate you having me. Can you give, you know, just a little background story of yourself um, and your work, you know, just so the audience can get to know you a little bit? Sure. So uh,
0: currently my job is product marketing uh, for the Ansible team at Red Hat. But like any job that I've ever had, it's, there's so much more to it than just marketing. Right. So, you know, my background is, I used to, you know, I started out in tech. Working at a textile manufacturer in the mid '90s, right? Like I remember seeing like the the big coax cables that used to run the the, the network at that company, right? <clears throat> so bringing them on board with Ethernet, running uh, used to run uh, ISP, used to you know dial up ISP in Hickory, North Carolina. Then I joined the Air Force, did big uh, you know big networks for the Air Force, deployed for OIF, uh, you know came back home. Got hurt doing a field exercise uh, after getting back from Iraq. So that was super awesome. I got medically discharged in 2010. And I've kind of been in the web ops and DevOps space ever since 2011. Um, so like kind of a broad spectrum of events and like history to pull from, from communications, some work in the intelligence fields, and then you know deployed overseas type work. Um, all within kind of the IT realm the whole time. So it's been like a super interesting a dichotomy going back and forth between public and private sector for me. So today, that, right, like we're you know hyping you know Ansible obviously. I'm super excited personally about uh, Ansible operators specifically. So taking Ansible code and using it as operators in Kubernetes or OpenShift as opposed to having to write pure Go code. So that's like a super cool thing that I'm interested in right now <clears throat> that we're working on as you know collaboratively. As Red Hat does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, before before we get too far on, you know, I want to make sure everybody knows about your newsletter because that's actually how I... Oh, yeah. I completely
0: forgot work, that. So. Sorry.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so
0: I write the newsletter DevOps-ish. Uh, it's a weekly newsletter covering DevOps, uh, cloud-native technologies, and open-source software. DevOps. Yeah, so make sure, make
1: sure you sign up for that. It's yeah. like super broad coverage there. So off mic, you and I got to talking a little bit about how you know current research topics right you know you have to read everything when you write a newsletter like that Mm -hmm. but uh you know this is the really interesting you had some thoughts on the like the emergence of of china into and from that that uh technology and devops and and business perspective you had some things to say that i i haven't heard a lot about yeah so dive into that
0: yeah so like i think
1: you know there's a lot of there's a lot of
0: stories in the media right now. And you're seeing it from both sides, right? Because I read a lot of Chinese news sources. I read a lot of American news sources. I read a lot of, you know, other EU based news sources as well. Um, And seeing a lot of, especially like the past couple of weeks from both sides, the U.S. side and the Chinese side talking about Huawei, the defense of Huawei and from the Chinese, the, the, you know, the kind of public criminalization of Huawei, the U.S. government is trying to do. Right, it's all it all ties back to uh, essentially like intelligence services and kind of some of the work I've done with that. It's uh, it's interesting, right? In the light of you know Snowden, we can now kind of talk about some of these things that we wouldn't have even known about as a, you know society until recently. Um, so, you know, the U S the Chinese, they, they have intelligence services. Those intelligence services surveil the internet. Uh, obviously the Chinese government has the great firewall of China and that's how they manage, you know, their internet access. It's very restrictive. Um, a U.S. company can't just walk into China and do, you know, like an internet connection and start up a service, right? Like they have laws in place. The Chinese government has laws in place that only Chinese companies can, you know, certified to work on their telecom industries, which. Are typically government, you know, owned companies. Um, they have a license to operate, uh, and it's you know all these regulatory requirements to get that. And there's only a handful of U.S. companies or international companies in general that have a license to operate in China themselves. They usually have to participate with like a subsidiary of a Chinese company to actually get access to the internet for the services they're trying to provide inside China. So. Somebody like Cloudflare, they did a few years ago, great blog post about like all the hoops they had to jump through technologically, you know, legally, contractually, the whole nine yards just to get a point of presence in China. Um, <clears throat> and keep in mind, like the internet in China is a very different internet than it is in the US. Uh, a, uh, it's Chinese based. So <laughs> B, because of its kind of, you know, separation from the rest of the internet. Uh, They have services that are similar to Twitter or whatever. Um, Facebook, the whole nine yards, they have comparative services on the Chinese side of things that are 100% run and owned by the Chinese, you know, company that maintains them. So, Twitter use in China is like very minimal. Uh, LinkedIn use is pretty good, you know. Uh, Facebook, I have no idea what the usage is in China. I'm sure Twitter and China are both trying to break into or Twitter and Facebook are trying to break into the Chinese market because of the massive population and growth of internet users there. It only makes sense. So, you know, just to give you an idea of kind of the landscape, it's not like operating anywhere else in the Northern hemisphere. Right. Or, you know, if you work with Australia or you know some countries in Africa, <clears throat> um, New Zealand, you know, typically pretty easy to work with China is like a whole another regulatory ball game. So, <clears throat> You know, the the U.S. government argues that Huawei is owned and run by the Chinese government. And there's some truth to that. There's some falsehoods to that to an extent, right? Like what percentage is unknown, uh, whether it's wholly subsidiary of the Chinese government is unknown. But even Huawei is like, no, we're not. Um, And they've admitted to some percentage. I forget what the current number is of ownership by you know, companies that are owned by the Chinese government kind of thing. So <clears throat> it's a lot of sleight of hand behind the scenes. It's a lot of, you know, jostling politically for essentially um, who makes the stuff that runs the internet. Now we've already kind of seen like China has set up like this separate internet, but what they're trying to do now is <clears throat> the new Silk Road. Uh, it's called, I think it's called Belton Road or something. They have a particular name for it in China, but essentially creating this, you know, Pacific to, you know, Europe uh, trade zone that's Chinese influence, right? So it'll be natural gas, oil, two-way kind of, you know, just sales and trade. Belt and Road is designed to bring kind of China into the full-blown industrialized modern era. So what that's doing is it's putting pressure on Huawei and other companies in China to expand just like we have had you know we being the rest of everybody not china have been pressuring ourselves to get into china so it's a two-way street the the main concern from the u.s government's part is they can't verify what every chip does in a huawei device right they don't know um it's the device complexity has gotten so bad it would take forever to do this um but you know we've been doing this since forever uh you know we did it with the soviets if we could get our hands on some Soviet technology, we would take it apart and figure it out, and you know, eventually, a couple of years later, we'd have it in our arsenal as well. Same thing with the Chinese, right? Like if they can get a hold of something of ours, which the U.S. has accused them of quite a bit of intellectual property theft, <laughs> and there's some facts behind that as well. Um, it's 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 always like this. It's always going to be like this, but we've never seen in our lifetimes this literal kind of kind of this new number one rising up uh the last time this kind of like happened yeah the cold war could kind of count as like two people or two countries two groups of people jockeying for number one on the global stage but statistically uh the ussr didn't compete very well with russia economically or the ussr didn't compete with the u.s economically very well china and by a lot of economic indicators has already like outstripped the u.s um there's some, you know, <laughs> there's some Bible somewhere that says the USB must be number one. Um, China has rewritten that Bible, right? Like they are taking the world stage by storm and saying, you know, yes, you've done this this way and this has worked well for you, but we'd like to try things a different way. And they have the size and the weight and the growth and the influence in the world now where it's causing some concerns between, you know, old school allies from like World War II. The U.S. and the U.K., the Australians are right there in China's backyard. And they're trying to figure out where do they fall? Do they want to buy Huawei equipment? Do they not? And then when you look at 5G and AI <clears throat> and how influential that will be in the future, building these 5G networks and then being able to tap into them is highly, highly savory to intelligence services. Right. Um What the U.S. does and what its allies do is the U.S. doesn't spy on its own citizens unless it has this very rigorous checklist of things that actually happens. What ends up happening is the U.S. says, hey, U.K., can you spy on our people for us? And the U.K. says the same thing. Can you spy on our people for us? And this actually goes way back to the five eyes days of World War II. Like this established relationship has been around since I think the 70s as far as like country v country spying. And the only reason that that law existed actually came about because I think of some of the Watergate stuff. Um, it used to be like totally carte blanche. You didn't know if the NSA was spying on you or not. <laughs> right? Like it, it, for the longest time, uh, intelligence agencies You know, there's 17 of them that are publicly known right now. One of those agencies I used to work for, it wasn't publicly known, the NRO, until the 1990s when Clinton accidentally said the three letters on national television during a presidential address. So (laughs) all of a sudden you had this whole industry of people saying, hey, no one knew about us. Now they're publicly exposed in the mid-90s. Whoops. It happens. So, yeah, like this is all kind of like this is all just been boiling along in the background. And there's a lot to unpack and feel free to just kind of dive into any one of those things.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, obviously, you know, you could talk for, for days and I mean, it's just like incredibly interesting, you know, the, the dance back and forth. Right. And, and um, the stories about, you know, the, the imports, exports mm-hmm. and and what have you, I guess the question would be, you know, like um, AI is an interesting, is an interesting space there, you know, and the development around, um, you know, just advanced software yeah. technologies, right? Because, and particularly, you know, I, I wonder being on the open source front. You know, what what are the, uh, the implications there? Because you know, really, you sort of have this um, ability for anyone to contribute mm-hmm. and and to sort of uh, manipulate yeah. those those products. So, you know, what what do you guys think about you know on the on the Red Hat and and DevOps? So, side I mean, <laughs> from the Red Hat perspective.
0: I I have no real comment, right? I mean, personally, I have thoughts about, like, how, like, AI will come about, right? Like, just like, uh, what was it? That FaceTime bug that was discovered a few weeks ago, discovered by, like, some high school kid in Arizona, I think, somewhere, right? Like, you know, just happened to stumble across and be able to replicate it. I think, honestly, I think that's how, like, the next, like, domino that needs to fall for AI to really kind of take off, that's kind of how it's going to be discovered. It's going to be... Somebody hacking away at something in their basement somewhere. Now, whether that basement is in Shenzhen or whether that basement is in Durham, North Carolina, that kind of matters. Because, well, if it's open to everyone on the planet, which would probably be the case in the U.S., if this person was like an open source developer, for, you know, for example, um, that's good for everyone. But if all of a sudden someone in a basement in Shenzhen discovers, you know, the next domino for AI they're going to be well-known very quickly because of the surveillance apparatus that exists in China. And then the Chinese will obviously adapt that technology however they see fit and maybe not share it with the rest of the world. And then all of a sudden we have this, you know, regime with a history that concerns some countries kind of in charge of everything because of their technological advantage that concerns
1: some policymakers in the U S. Yeah. It's, as we can understand, you know, yeah, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, I mean, AI. You know, AI is so going to become so ubiquitous. Already built into consumer devices all over mm-hmm. the place. You know, where I mean, these are these are narrow applications. Um, we could debate all day long. You know, when's the singularity in general AI going you know, right. to sort of come around? Right, but yeah. but there are certainly meaningful industrial and, and business applications that are are getting quite mm-hmm. robust. And just the ability to, to process and this endless amounts of data to come out with, you know, some kind of um, decision making mm-hmm. complex. This, this could be used for for ill or for good. Right. And you know, I guess that's that's the question.
0: It's not even that.
1: Right. Like it's
0: it's so much of it's never just one thing with the U.S.-Chinese relationship. It's always a multitude of things. And it's never just U.S.-China. Right. Like it's a big globe. We're all interconnected now. There's all these other players that are in the mix as well. Um, So when when the U.S. is mad at Huawei and they accuse Huawei of stealing intellectual property, the real crux of the argument is, well, all these U.S. customers or companies had to spend this time, effort, energy to patent this intellectual property that they have built their business around. And China possibly went in and just stole it overnight one day and now they're building the same product at a much lower cost because they have zero r d budget and they didn't need it to begin with anyway um the D budget was a thousand dollars and you know the next zero day they discovered <laughs> and that's all it took for them to get to intellectual property that they can bake into anything now for any of their businesses and they have a competitive advantage already just from that right there so that's kind of the u.s story on that side now what's going to be interesting is As China evolves, will we start doing the same things to China? Because obviously, you know, our our defensive policy within the U.S. regarding Internet infrastructure has changed under the current administration. Defend forward is the current kind of strategy, whereas don't let the attackers come to your door. Maybe go find the attacker's door and close it before they can use it kind of thing. So defend forward is kind of what they're saying is the technology strategy or defense strategy now for cyberspace as the government calls it. <laughs> <It's>...
1: <laughs> and I mean, you know, cyber security is, is just like changing every day. I mean, it's just like Right, and like, that's, that's where like AI like
0: yeah, AI cyber security, right? Like quantum computing,
1: all these things kind of it's play all together, converge, right? right. Uh, in in a short period of time, certainly less than 10 years if not less than 5, where you have the convergence of all these very powerful um, technologies and you know, quantum encryption and you know, people are experimenting with quantum communication now and, mm-hmm. you know, just the networking technology is, is leaps and bounds. Um, well, yeah, I read something the other day, like they figured out the Chinese,
0: some Chinese military industrial company figured out a way to create quantum radar or right? like in a very small, like lab environment. But basically it's like you need a photon and then another photon and that's how they create radar. Like one bounces, the other doesn't, but they disconnect. That's how it knows, right? Like oh, only one came back, the other didn't kind of thing. Uh, And I could be way off on like calling it a photon or whatever, but like the Chinese figured out that this bond that exists between these two molecular objects of radio wave uh, can be stretched like long distances. So you could literally figure out if something stealth is out there because this bond now is broken because something broke this molecular connection
1: between radio waves. It's super, super crazy to think about. Right. So yeah. yeah there's so many applications where you go like, that's amazing. And, and oh, wait, well, right, like, it's, know, oh my God, that's terrifying. Right. Right. Yeah. right. And, and you get down to this, like, do I want, uh, do I want the bad guys to have that? Wait a second. Am I the bad guy? You know, and, right. you know yeah, like, of, and the, yeah, the U S government thinks it's the good guy. Right. <laughs> right. Right. You know, no matter what. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it comes down to, you know, sort of how will two number ones, Like you put it, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of get along in a technologically advanced um, society. So we could go on forever, you know. Obviously, so let's let's break it down to you know one one or two takeaways. You know, I guess from. But I'm interested in think about you're consuming so much information from Mm -hmm. the entire industry, you know, and you're just out there like thinking and talking and writing about. You know, so much, maybe a couple of trends that, you know, the engineering audience must pay attention to, you know, in the next 12 months. Oh, okay. So for 12 months, uh, pay attention to,
0: uh, as far as in, like the systems back inside Kubernetes, but like how to make Kubernetes easier, right? Like Kubernetes is not the end goal. Like Kubernetes should like just fade into the background, just like the CPU. Although thank you, Spectre and side channel attacks is now back in the forefront. Um, but, right, like, we don't really think about where our CPU came from unless we're you know, really talking about some particular application-specific thing. We only care about megahertz or what class or, you know, some some certain one spec in the CPU. Um, like, Kubernetes needs to get back to that level of, not back to it, but actually get to the level where people just assume it's there, where the APIs are just there and they function well and they're just stable and easy to deploy and manage. Um, After that, you really kind of need to look at if you're not writing stuff in Go or Rust as an engineer, you kind of have to ask yourself why. Um, I think we've seen enough stable Go code running at scale out on the Internet at this point that there's really kind of, yes, Java is the predominant language out there right now. But there's kind of no reason why Go can't fill a lot of those voids uh, that Java is filling. Uh, and usually in a much more efficient manner for a third thing. I mean, it's just, you, there's, I've come to the conclusion that there's no way to separate tech from everything else in the world. So, you know, like my newsletter, we dive. I dive into topics of politics and, you know, diversity and inclusion and all these things because the world is so interconnected. Now you can't have your politics over here and your tech over here, the two touch now. And like, you need to just kind of learn to operate in that space Big
1: thinking stuff, man. I love that. <laughs> I mean, it's not to say that it's the right thing.
0: It's just this is the reality
1: of the world we're in. Yeah, it's just like uh, I I take away the lesson: just you know, consume as much as you can and try to draw lines because y- you just need to put it all together, and you can't be a yeah. a, a single discipline professional anymore. Wow. You just you won't get anywhere.
0: No, if you're if you're the best widget maker in town, prepare to have somebody come out widget you.
1: You know, seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Chris, that's fun spending time with you, man. I love the love the direction we took it there. <laughs> Thanks. I appreciate it. This was pretty fun.
0: Thanks for listening to the Frontier Podcast produced by gun.io. We're the only freelancing platform where engineers actually go to hire other engineers. If you enjoyed the show and want to learn more about how to hire or freelance with us, head over to gun.io slash podcast to get in touch. And we'll pay for your first ten hours with a kick-ass engineer.